it wasn't a grand plan uh, at all. Um, Klatskin was one of the very first, if not the first, to have a postdoctoral fellowship program. But he was not a look over your shoulder kind of mentor. He was, uh, you kind of, you kind of developed your own program. He had one other person working with him, Kaiman and Bob Shag. And Bob was interested in lipid. And he, he suggested setting up an isolated perfused rat liver. And that was the other turning point. Uh, because as soon as I saw that liver making bile, the yellow bile coming out of this perfused liver, I had a, a, a another one of these eureka kind of things. Ah, my God, how's that happening? And fascination with that simple question is what has driven my uh, passion uh, in, in the biliary secretory system ever since. That's Dr. James Boyer. Today, on Behind the Microscope. Hello everyone and welcome back. I'm Bijan Sadie and this is Behind the Microscope, a podcast about the people and process behind the scenes of science and medicine. Today we are joined by the great Dr. James Boyer the Ensign Professor of Medicine in Digestive Diseases and Emeritus Director of the Liver Center at Yale School of Medicine. He earned his bachelor's degree from Haverford College and his MD from Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, followed by internal medicine residency at Cornell and Yale and a fellowship in hepatology at Yale. Today, he shares his personal and professional story from his formative scientific experiences in Calcutta to his foundational discoveries in biliary formation, secretion, and cholestasis, to his work as the founding director of the NIDDK-funded Liver Center at Yale, and his continuing efforts to inspire and educate young scientists interested in gastroenterology and hepatology. Without further ado, it is our honor to welcome Dr. James Boyer. Now, how did you find out that you wanted to do medicine slash research. Where did that passion come from? Did you know that as a, as a, like a young child, or is that something you discovered a little bit later? No, not at all. I mean, it was much later that I uh, discovered uh, that I wanted to go into medicine. I thought originally that uh, when I was starting college that I wanted to be an engineer. And my college had... Uh, <clears throat> Interestingly, a small, very small school, but it had an engineering course. And I took that course the first year and it was had to do with drafting. And uh, it was the dullest thing I ever did in my <laughs> life was to, was to draw three-dimensional <laughs> diagrams with blocks mm -hmm. and things of that sort. Uh, but, and uh, so I was sort of uh, didn't know what I was going to do. And I had an aunt and uncle that lived off campus and I would often visit them on a weekend. I was telling my uncle about my dilemma. This was now, I think I was in end of my freshman year. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, why don't you, why don't you, uh, he said, no, he, he asked me the question, what was your favorite course in high school? Mm -hmm. And I was, was quick to answer. I said, biology was my favorite course. He said, well, then why, why don't you think about going into the medical field? Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I, I can't really, really do that. I don't like the sight of blood and <laughs> don't like doctors. <laughs> yeah. So that doesn't seem but, like it makes sense. 
but uh, I thought a little bit more about it, and I ended up majoring in, in biology and uh, applying to medical school, and, and uh, that's how that's how it all happened. Uh, so it wasn't until I was in, you know, in college and, and had chosen my major uh, mm. that uh, that medicine became a possibility in my mind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and did I mean? You know, if you didn't like the sight of blood, did you get over that in medical school? Oh, I, I think I got over that uh, I, to, to see whether or not I, I would I would uh, survive in a hospital situation. Uh, I actually, uh, I actually, I th- one summer uh, during during college, I worked as an orderly in the mm. in the neighborhood hospital. And I enjoyed that. And, uh, you know, I emptied bedpans and I learned how to make a hospital bed and, and mm-hmm. things of that sort. I think that got me over the, the squeamishness that I had mm-hmm. originally uh, felt. <laughs> That's awesome. So then how was your experience in med school? Well, I loved med school. Uh, I was at what, the Johns Hopkins and Baltimore was a lively place to, mm-hmm. to be uh, in the, and uh, we had a wonderful group of classmates. We would, we would, a group of us would uh, go out to, to dinner periodically and have a great time. And and uh, Hopkins, with its history of medicine, uh, was also you know very interesting. And and so I I I enjoyed that. And I, and I actually uh, wanted to stay at Hopkins as a as a house officer, but. But uh, <clears throat> I uh, I didn't get accepted actually, and uh, I but I did get accepted to Cornell, and uh, so that's where I ended, ended up uh, for my first two years uh, in residency. Okay, but and uh, so I'm sort of going through this process now. Of, uh, if, you know, I don't know if the structure was the same, but third year is sort of just all of these blocks of various different things and. It's an abbreviated period of time where it feels like, okay, decide if you like this or not, and then you can do that for the rest of your life. So was that how the structure was? And how did you decide that you wanted to do medicine? Well, I, I, I like the diagnostic aspects of, of, of medicine. I like the fact that it was broad, uh, uh, that it was pu- solving puzzles, uh, mm-hmm. diagnostic puzzles and and taking care of the whole person. I think those, those two aspects were why I, I went into internal medicine. Mm-hmm. And at that point, did you have any thought that you would wanna do, that, that research would be part of your future? Or, or were you thinking, you know, I'll go to residency and, and do clinical practice? Sure. Well, I, I, I very much was oriented towards uh, an academic career following uh, my last year in, in college when I did original research. Um, mm-hmm. And that research uh, ended up getting published with my name on it. And when I saw my name in print, which was, I think, when I was in co- already in medical mm-hmm. school, my professors in, at, at Haverford had, had put my name in the middle of, the, of their paper. And 
it was it was it was sort of an existentialist type of experience to see my yeah. name in print and i think that was a major driving driving force that experience in college of doing an independent research project mm -hmm. and, and and which i have done ever since and and uh, uh still try to do uh, although mm -hmm. much reduced <laughs> in amount and activity um I mean, I, I think that is, there is something about, I remember the first paper I was middle author on somewhere, you know, in college and when it came out, I don't know what it is, but it is kind of like, oh, I've contributed something to something. Yeah, that's going to be there forever. So your right. name is going to be there forever on that paper. <laughs> right, right. It, it is, it, there's something special about that. Yeah. Um, so then um, can you talk a little bit about residency? Did you have time to do research in residency? What was residency like at Cornell? Well, I, it was it was uh, the first year was 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 internship, of course. You rotated through the, the different services, <clears throat> um, and the second year you were in charge of a, of, a, of a ward. You were uh, at the, some institutions had that, and the third year, but this was done in the second year. And of course, this was during the Vietnam era, war era. And so all male house officers were subject to the draft. Uh, mm. And uh, unless they got into to an alternative program. And I was interested, I thought I was interested in uh, infectious disease at, at the time. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to, I wanted to uh, go to NIH or after my first two years, go to the public health service. Uh, but again, uh, I didn't get into that program. Mm -hmm. Great lessons in life about not getting your first choice always, you know. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it works out. Because <laughs> it often redirects you to a better place. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, so this... Uh, so I didn't get into the program, but I learned from one of my fellow uh, in, interns that there was a new program. It was a precursor, it turned out, of the Fogarty Center, International Fogarty Center. It's mm -hmm. called the Office of International Research. Mm -hmm. And uh, they sent uh, residents, uh, they commissioned them in the public health service, and they sent them to various places in, in third world countries, usually developing mm countries uh egypt uh, uh taiwan at the time um places like that well my medical school had a program i knew about it, had a program in india in calcutta mm -hmm. and so i jumped on the plane and went down to washington and i literally walked into the office of this newly constructed uh, office of international research and i said I'm your man here. I, I, <laughs> I would like to go to India and work at the Hopkins unit. Can you, can you, will you take me on? Mm -hmm. And they, uh, they accepted my, uh, my application. So I spent two or three months uh, at NIH and at Hopkins uh, before going out to India, uh, learning to do hepatic vein catheterizations at Hopkins. Mm -hmm. Uh, and actually because I was, uh, going to, to I, uh, my boss wanted me to study patients with idiopathic portal hypertension. Mm -hmm. I was more interested in, in studying cholera, mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and, and trying to find out where, where, what, 
where the inter epidemic, uh, where, where the organism went in between epidemics. Was it like typhoid? Did the organism go into the gallbladder or not? So I was going to drain the gallbladders of patients who oh, had cholera. Amazing. But it never worked out. When I got out there, uh, just logistically, the cholera hospital was across town. Hmm. I was based at another hospital. The opportunity at the other hospital was to work on these patients with liver disease. Mm -hmm. uh, and not uh, so I had to abandon the cholera project, although it turned out that my theory was correct in the end. Really? In the end. Um, abandoned that project. And uh, pursue uh, evaluating patients who, who were uh, who had a, this unusual form of portal hypertension. And um, luckily, I was put in. Um, I was supposed to work under a pathologist at this hospital in, in Calcutta, but he left and went to uh, to another part of the country. So I was left uh, sort of high and dry under the tutelage of a surgeon there. But that was fortuitous, too, because he controlled these patients. Mm -hmm. And he, he ensconced me in a small room that was his former office, mm -hmm. told his residents to kowtow to me and allow me to do these studies, which I never would have been able to do ordinarily if he has mm -hmm. a because it was a very authoritarian uh, environment. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you know, I was a young resident. Uh, and long story short, I was able to do these uh, physiologic studies, hemodynamic studies on patients with EPAC port and go to the operating room while he That's operated so cool. on, get a piece of tissue, uh, and ended up publishing a paper. Uh, on idiopathic portal hypertension in the annals of internal medicine uh, as a first author. Wow. And uh, several other papers from there as well. I might tell you that in the middle of this time, because communications with the U.S. were by, by uh, air mail, they weren't, uh, uh, you didn't call people up in, you know, in the middle of the night or anything like that. Mm -hmm. You had to rent space on the trunk lines. Uh, <laughs> I had two calls, one from the hospital, New York hospital, from a lawyer, <laughs> because I got involved in some case. They were suing everybody in sight for the patient who had fallen out of bed. Mm. And, and uh, I was one of the ones who was uh, five others that were, you know, were 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 uh, took care for over a twenty four hour period. So mm -hmm. we were all sued. Turned out they dropped the case, but but uh, that was one phone call. And the other phone call we made was my sister in law got married. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so you're pretty isolated. So I had yeah. after about six months, I felt I ruined my career. I, this is the mm. worst thing I'd ever done. Mm -hmm. uh, I I'll never succeed. And uh, and then things began. Then I began to have enough cases. Then I began data began to come in, mm. and uh, you know I just was wasn't patient enough initially. So so during this time, were you were you operating like strictly as you know as a researcher, or were you also doing were you also practicing medicine? Yeah, I was hospital? I was I was full time doing just dedicated research. Yeah, yeah. And you thought that your career was over because 
it just wasn't moving fast enough. Yeah. All right. All right. Yeah. And, I, and I wasn't sure I was be able to get anywhere. Anything would be worthwhile, but it was a very, very, it was a, it was a life changing uh, mm-hmm. situation, not only for myself, but with my wife as well. Uh, we still look back on that experience as being one of the most extraordinary uh, parts of our early life. Mm-hmm. And uh, during the time we were there, some very distinguished people came through as visiting visiting uh, faculty, uh, checking on it, see what I was doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Chairman of medicine at Columbia came through, uh, for example, a guy named Stan Bradley. And the technique I was using of catheterization was actually mm-hmm. one that he had he had uh, he had uh, de- helped develop. Uh, so there was uh, there were other opportunities that came from this and and uh, so that's what that experience what changed me from being interested in infectious disease mm-hmm. to wanting to be a hepatologist mm-hmm. and uh, there were only a couple of programs in the country that did uh, pure hepatology um, one uh, and I, I didn't want to do gastroenterology I wasn't interested mm-hmm. in being a gastroenterologist. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I got I I wanted it to finish my residency first, mm-hmm. so I uh, had an opportunity to apply uh, to the Yale program. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cornell wanted me back, and Hopkins wanted me to come finish my residency there, mm-hmm. uh, based on you know what I had done, shown that I could do in in mm-hmm. India. So, I, but my wife was from Connecticut, and. Uh, so we chose, and Klatskin was, he was the guru, uh, uh, hepatologist at Yale. And, this is, uh, this is the same Klatskin as the Klatskin tumor. That's right. Like, and, okay. uh, and, uh, and, uh, uh, I was able to finish my residency, one final year of residency and start a fellowship, uh, there, uh, yeah, that was my one trip back during the time I was in, in, in India to, to to finalize my my next period of training. Mm, that's amazing. So, how long were you in India? I was actually in India a total of eighteen months. Okay. Uh, two, three months uh, before you know on the front end, and several months on the on the other end to complete the two year period in the public health service. Mm. It was a wonderful that's, experience. Um. That's amazing. So, so then as you're starting, well, I guess you're finishing residency, but then starting fellowship, what are your thoughts about what your career is going to be? Were you thinking, okay, you know, I'm a physician scientist now. You, you did a very kind of trial by fire postdoc in Calcutta. Uh, what was your thinking that you, you, you know, wanted to have a lab and, and, you know, in a traditional academic sense, um, and what was the environment like at Yale to, to sort of like, what, how, how were they shaping their fellows? Well, I, I think they, they, it wasn't a grand plan uh, at all. Um, Klatskin was one of the very first, not the first to have a postdoctoral fellowship program. Hmm. Um, uh, but he was not a look over your shoulder kind of matter. He was uh, you kind of you kind of developed your own program. He had one other person working with him, a guy by the name of Bob Shag, uh, who was interested in lipids, having 
train with Curtis uh, for a year with Curtis Obacher in Boston. And that, and, and that was a time when the lipoproteins were being described in NIH. And so, by, so I wanted to do, I didn't have any basic science training whatsoever. And so I, I wanted to, uh, I, to I do, I do some clinical projects with Klatskin. Mm-hmm. One was to, uh, to uh, review charts of patients who had hepatitis to define what, what the lesion of subacute hepatic necrosis was, which he thought was a prognostic uh, sign in hepatitis. Mm-hmm. And we got a New England Journal paper for that. And the other was to get some basic, more basic training. And so I hooked up with Bob Scheig and Bob was interested in lipid. And so we were going to, he, he suggested setting up an isolated perfused rat liver, which would be making the lipoproteins and we could mm-hmm. study study some of that process. It wasn't really clear to me what it was we were gonna study, but the idea of setting up this perfused liver made sense. And that was the other turning point uh, because as soon as I saw that liver making bile, mm-hmm. we had to put a catheter in the, in the common duct of the rat, this was rat liver. Mm-hmm. And we killed a bunch of rats to collect blood and we had a perfusion chamber called a Miller perfusion chamber that had been described. And when I saw that, and the reason you catheterized the bile duct was that was a a monitor of function of the perfused liver, should make about a milliliter of bile an hour. But when I saw it making this bile, the yellow Mm -hmm. bile coming out of this perfused liver, I had another one of these Eureka kind of things. My God, how's that happening? And that fast that fascination with that simple question is what has driven my uh, passion uh, in mm-hmm. in the biliary secretory system ever since. Mm-hmm. So again, you know, it didn't start out that way, and, and uh, I started looked at perfused livers for an entirely different reason. I mm-hmm. lost all interest in lipids and <laughs> mm-hmm. and turned my attention to biliary secretion. And fortunately for me, very little was known about it at that time. So almost anything I did, you know, turned out to be publishable. <laughs> That's amazing. So, so how did you um, sort of just, you know, go in that kind of independent direction? How did you work with your mentors to kind of uh, say, well, you know, I, I well, know we're studying these I think the, the one of the great things about you asked about the atmosphere at Yale was right. They allowed you to do do your own thing, mm-hmm. and nobody was stopping me. Let's put it this way: nobody said you got to do this, you got to do that. Mm-hmm. And uh, for me, at that time, my career that was that was what made it possible for me to pursue my what what what, what my pat became my passion, my curiosity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's one of the things that I always say to people starting out is. You know, no matter what your background or what your training experience is, you need to have a problem that you're fascinated about that will mm-hmm. get you up in the morning and, and, and lead you. Lead you. Um, without that passion, the, the, most, the greatest tech, technological background won't, won't uh, be right. much use to you. Right. Yeah, yeah. you need that motivation because it's, there's, too much, there's too much failing in science to... Um, to to not have that kind of really yeah. motivating. Well, and you can always find somebody to help you with the techniques. 
right? Mm -hmm. So you don't have to necessarily know yourself all the techniques. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you put the techniques first and then go look for a problem, it never works out. Mm -hmm. So, so you decided, so, you know, you got really passionate about a bile secretion and the fact that right. the liver can do this. It is truly an amazing thing. Um, when did you start kind of studying that on your own? Was that during fellowship? Yeah. During fellowship. Okay. Right. In um, fact, I was very much on my own. Klatskin didn't, you know, was, didn't uh, have any interest in that. And, and, uh, and Shaw didn't either. Um, <laughs> but um, I got uh, some help from the physiology department. Um, a friend of mine was taking a, a year of fellowship with in the basic sciences at Yale uh, uh, with a, with a, in a lab of uh, a scientist called Peter Curran, C-U-R-R-A-N. He's the uh, physiologist who who uh, articulated the standing osmotic uh, uh, water hypothesis. The the uh, and and uh, so my friend said, well, why don't you come over and present your stuff, uh, what you've been doing to our lab meeting? I said, oh, no, no I couldn't do that. My God, <laughs> I'm just, it's just me, you know, mm -hmm. and, and this is a famous physiologist we're talking mm -hmm. about here. He said, no, no, he's very, he's very uh, good about this, he said. So I, I went over and presented my mediocre studies that uh, <laughs> I had been doing and the next thing I knew, he started sending me, this is Peter Kern, started sending, he was happened to be the editor of gas, the gastroenterology section of the American, Physio, uh, American hmm. Journal of Physiology. He started sending me uh, papers to review. Mm -hmm. and, and that meant to me enormous amount because mm -hmm. here was a basic scientist well-known that believed enough in what I was doing mm -hmm. uh, that uh, so what I would so it was a, it was a, a vote of confidence mm -hmm. uh, at a critical time in my fledgling uh, career mm -hmm. so I actually had three mentors he was my basic scientist mentor mm -hmm. Klatskin was my clinical hep hepatology mentor and then later a little bit later Hans Popper, who uh, was the father of, of modern hepatology, uh, uh, and for whom I, uh, um, who, who, who uh, let me just put it this way, was very instrumental in getting me involved internationally uh, mm -hmm. at meetings and, and introduced me to, to uh, European and Asian uh hepatology mm -hmm. from which a number of fellows uh eventually came to my lab so mm -hmm. he was a mentor in that aspect so i credit all three of them for my my success and it's another lesson i think for people starting off that you know no one mentor is mentor is necessarily going to fulfill all your needs mm -hmm. and uh, so you need to look around for others to help in different areas yeah, that's amazing. So, so what, where did things go from there? I get, I guess real quick, one question is during fellowship, how, um, what are your like clinical responsibilities on top of doing research? Mm -hmm. Because I, you know, there, there's a lot of people who 
um, became physician scientists and, you know, went, did pathology. I think pathology was a, was more of a streamlined route of doing that. Hepatology doesn't, you know, in, in my experience, I haven't met a lot of, uh, hepatologists who, who, because there's more, more time intensive, like clinical responsibilities, I think. So, how was that managed as a fellow and sort of throughout your career? Well, the fellowship was two years and at that time, and the first year was a clinical year. And I would say I probably, I had about half my time um, that I spent um, at clinical consult work and liver bi doing liver biopsies, seeing patients in the hospital. And the other half devoted to both to a chart review on the, uh, that I did uh, of 170 cases mm -hmm. of hepatitis and, uh, and uh, studies setting up the perfused rat liver and mm -hmm. starting those studies. But most of the, of the, uh, the second year was, was free. I think mm -hmm. I had a clinic. Uh, I didn't have uh, a lot of clinical responsibilities in my second year. Mm -hmm. And that was critical. And unfortunately today, that's not always the case, even with people on, you know, on, on postdoc fellows, NIH training grants, they often don't get the, the uh, support they need for, to keep them out of the, out of the clinic. Yeah. And uh, I feel we talked about this a lot in this podcast and a lot of younger physician scientists, you know, that are maybe 35, 40, who are just finishing sort of the traditional training. They, they say it's like very structured until you finish your MD, PhD. And then it's, then it depends where you are. It totally depends on the environment. If there's going to be enough support to say, no, this is protected time. You should be in the lab. And so I don't know if you have any tips on how do you identify those kinds of environments as you know, as someone young and bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and coming out of out of residency or fellowship and trying to figure out where am I going to be able to pick a place so that I can, yes, do clinical medicine, but also be able to focus on research, which is which is super time intensive. Well, you do you just simply have to go to a program that is going to protect protect your time as best they can. I mean, people get sick. You get pulled off out of the lab, back into the, or things of that sort. But, but you need to have at least a year or two now of protected time uh, to be able to to get your first uh, paper in, first authored paper. That is, that's a requirement now to, to go on to the next step to get a KO eight or or equivalent uh, if you're a PhD. Um, so. You you really it's the program I think that has that has to has a reputation mm -hmm. for protecting their fellows. Mm -hmm. um, and so then just kind of going from there, what was the next step for you after fellowship was over? How did you sort of build your career and and you know? Well, <clears throat> then of course I I stayed on at Yale uh, for three more years. Mm -hmm. So I was at Yale initially for six years altogether. Okay. A year of fellowship, a year of residency, two years of fellowship. And then I was on the faculty as an assistant professor. 
when I got this, and I had, in the meantime, been getting offers to other institutions to to leave, and I, I was very happy there. We had a nice house, block from the, the beach, and 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 uh, in, in Connecticut and Brantford, and and uh, I had no intention really of leaving. But again, my my mentor, Dr. Klassen, was very. Uh, orient his own activities and and as long as he left me alone i was happy but on the other hand i'm not wasn't sure what my career trajectory was going to be at that time and along came an offer from the from the university of chicago where they let me have my own liver unit and hire somebody else to mm -hmm. join me and doubled my salary mm -hmm. uh I, I offer i ended up I had no intention to going to Chicago. I had no intention right. going, leaving uh, Connecticut. Uh, but also, my wife wanted to go to law school, and, uh, uh, and uh, she to go back to school. We had two kids at that at that time, and and she wanted she wanted to go become a lawyer, and uh, she would have had to drive an hour. Uh, mm -hmm. from home and so forth. There were five law schools in Chicago. So mm -hmm. uh, she ended up, uh, after we got there, getting into Northwestern uh, Law School. And mm -hmm. So it was, uh, a it, was a, it was a traumatic move for us uh, family-wise, but uh, it was uh, a, another very important move, like going to Calcutta. I mean, this going to Chicago was a little bit like going to Calcutta <laughs> mm -hmm. and it opened up new horizons and, and uh, it, it told the hepatology world that I was independent from my mentor mm -hmm. by that move. And, and uh, I was put on the council of the liver society at a very young age. Mm -hmm. uh, at the time I was the youngest person to be appointed to the, to the ASLD council. Mm -hmm. Um, in those days, it was a ten-year period. You were on, on, you were on. You became president, I think, after the fifth year, sixth year, hmm. uh, and then you were, you were still on the council for about three more years after that. So that's where I really got to know Hans Popper, and because he was a life member of the council, and, mm -hmm. and where he began to promote my international life activities so it was a huge career development move for me uh into the rest of the world of hepatology mm -hmm. and i mean how can you talk a little bit about what that experience was like kind of you know now separated from your two mentors at yale and you know probably not yet um uh knowing hans popper how did you navigate that kind of you know, sudden, suddenly being completely independent and, and, and now responsible sounds like for hiring someone else. What was that process like? And do you have tips for people that, you know, sh should they find themselves in that situation and uh, getting recruited away from their home yeah. institution? Well, I, 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 I went, you know, because they offered me the opportunity to, to be, to, to set up my own unit. I mean, it was definitely something that, that was career developing for me. Mm -hmm. I knew if I stayed at, at Yale, I might or might not achieve that goal for some more time. Mm -hmm. I probably would have been all right staying at Yale, but but uh, 
but uh, this uh, opened up more doors at that time mm -hmm. uh, for me. Um, and uh, I came back to Yale, was recruited back to Yale uh, six years later. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, that's, that was, you know, so I didn't, my emotionally, I didn't really leave, <laughs> leave the Northeast. And I had to say, I, at, it was at that time, before, right before we went to Chicago, that I had come to Maine for the first time. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I come come to Maine to look for a species that that I would have a big can bile canaliculus that we could mm -hmm. do micropuncture in. Mm -hmm. And I, of course, I didn't find it. it was it wasn't a they weren't vertebrate livers were somewhat similar in terms of the mm -hmm. small size of the bile canaliculus, but mm -hmm. but uh, while I was. Uh, <clears throat> At uh, in Chicago, I I, uh, I think it was when I was in Chicago. Away was when I came back to Yale. Um, I saw this work being presented at the liver meetings, where when you paralyze the actin myosin skeleton, uh, the in in two adjacent hepatocytes, the biocanaliculus actually expanded and got uh, quite large. Interesting, and uh, and I said, uh, Eureka! That's where what we can use that's to cool. to to cannulate the, the uh, and get the electrical potentials and so forth in the hepatocyte. Uh, I wasn't electric trained at all in electrophysiology, so here was an example where I had to go find somebody that was, mm -hmm. and I, I found a wonderful guy who was an Austrian who came uh, had had done his. Uh, a sabbatical with Gerhard Giebisch in the Department of Physiology at Yale. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were able to get him to come back and do some experiments for Dr. Giebisch at the same time, try my cup, my hepatocyte couplets to mm -hmm. see whether or not they could be, could be uh, cannulated. Indeed, uh, he, he was successful and we got a PNAS paper out of that. That's awesome. <laughs> um. That's amazing. So can, can we talk a little bit about um, the Mount Desert uh, Island Labs? Because um, mm -hmm. you've been, like you said, you've, you, you've been involved sort of with them for a long time. And there's a lot of history there. So you, you don't have to go into details, but can you just, for people who don't know what it is, kind of, you know, what, what are these labs and why are they important in, in the historical context of of basic science, yeah, physiology. Well, the the uh, when people uh, when biologists began to study live uh, animals rather than dead birds and dead and pickled fish, uh, as they did in the nineteenth century, uh, they went to the shore, to the seashore, to to get specimens, worms and starfish and sea urchins and and the like. Uh, and there were a number of them that cropped up uh, around the world and around the country, three of which have survived in the, in the northeast United States. One was Woods Hole, one was uh, Cold Spring Harbor, and the other one was this small laboratory in Maine. And you can see why, why the other two survived, because they were near Boston and New York. This one survived, I think, because of its beauty and its association with it 
National Park, uh, Acadia National Park. And it was a place, it was when I went there, it was a totally seasonal laboratory. It's really a, almost a summer camp like at, atmosphere at that time. And a lot of physiologists went there, particularly renal physiologists. This is the Mecca. Uh, this is where the aglomerular fish was studied that proved that the renal function had a tubular secretion and not just a filtration. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it was the experiment of nature that you find in the, in, that uh, helps uh, solve uh, physiologic problems. Um, and uh, so I learned uh, early on from, from renal physiologists, mm -hmm. some physicians, some basic scientists, about how to localize sodium potassium ATPase in, in the cell uh, by histochemical methods initially. Mm -hmm. uh, I got the idea about, you know, micropuncture while I was, you know, from there because they were at that time uh, using renal tubules to micropuncture. So I, there was a lot of stimulation that I got there. And again, it was very much like the experience I said, told you when I from Peter Kern, uh, some of the basic physiologists, they were in charge of, of physiologic reviews, asked me mm -hmm. to write a, a review mm -hmm. on bile secretion mm -hmm. <laughs> back in 1980. Mm -hmm. And that was a very rudimentary uh, article for sure. We didn't know a lot about it, mm -hmm. but it was because of that, that contact there uh, with, with, base, with, uh, with uh, people that, you get these opportunities. So mm -hmm. again, it was a, Clatting didn't want me to go up there. He told me it was a boondoggle. I shouldn't <laughs> go. And uh, so one of the things I wrote into my contract when I left and went to the University of Chicago was that I could return to the MDIBL uh, for two months every summer. Wow, awesome. So that was a, another reason for going to Chicago. Um. That's that's amazing. Have you continued to do that throughout your career to and go every up summer? And, up, uh, and I've continued to do that every, every summer. I wrote into the contract uh, when I came back to Yale, and uh, they've allowed this. Uh, and that's this, this. I have to tell you, this opportunity to take uh, a couple of months off every year away from clinical responsibilities mm -hmm. is a very unique was a very unique opportunity. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was very fortunate to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, when I initially came back to Yale, I only could come for a month, but, uh, but uh, most of the time I've, I've been there for two months. Now I still go there, but uh, I, I don't have a lab there uh, anymore. Um, my lab, I do have a lab there, but it's not a functioning lab now, now mm -hmm. except from the course that you that mm -hmm. you uh, were aware of mm -hmm. um, and participated in. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, that that opportunity freed up my all my grants, all my grants for forty years were written at that laboratory. Really, in the, summer, in the summers, yeah. Wow, free so, of free of free of free of somebody calling me about a patient every two minutes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, it's not something honestly that I've ever heard of. It's certainly not now, right? But that, but um, is probably very important to be able to um, um, get away from from 
you know, your everyday stuff that can just get piled on. Like you said, people will call you or they see in the hallway. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And that's why I encourage people to take sabbaticals as mm -hmm. often as they can, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is hard to do nowadays because both spouses are usually working. Mm -hmm. Um, Hard to, hard to, it's it's hard to do. It's much Mm -hmm. harder to do. I was very lucky. So from just a logistical standpoint, when you would go for two months, did you, I mean, you, you had a functioning lab, so you, you had experiments going. Did you, did you bring personnel with you? How did that work? So, uh, so I I always had uh, students uh, there that did summer fellowships, uh, summer student fellowships, and some applied to the lab, some came from Yale, uh, um, and I was very, very fortunate early on to have one of my postdoctor fellows who trained with me, mm-hmm. and that was Ned Ballatori, mm-hmm. whose name you know, you know um, who was a PhD. And he worked with me for two years at Yale, and then he, and I, I brought him up to the main lab. Well, he just loved it. And mm-hmm. when he went back to Rochester from whence he had gotten his PhD into the Department of Environmental Health Sciences there. And uh, had and brought his own postdocs uh, to the lab, or pre-docs, I should say, mm-hmm. to, to the lab, and that's how we. And he basically ended up running running the lab uh, mm-hmm. for quite a while. Tragically, as you know, he he uh, developed uh, sarcoma of the heart muscle and, mm-hmm. and died uh, prematurely. But he was he worked with me there. I would say maybe almost 20 years, maybe not quite that long. Mm-hmm. And of course it was there and, and, and experiments that we, and, and I, in the midst of that, I, I, I did a sabbatical in Europe to learn molecular biology. Mm-hmm. I had never had any formal training in basic, in the basic sciences. Mm-hmm. It was always a bootstrap operation <laughs> and uh, always finding somebody else to help me. And uh, so I went and worked as a postdoc I was now a professor, but I worked as a postdoc next to people who, (laughs) it was my first sabbat. My first sabbat was at NIH when I was in Chicago. That was the other part of the the deal going to Chicago that I could Mm -hmm. take a sabbatical. Mm -hmm. So that was the first time I worked at the bench in a basic science lab. And then uh, this time I I, uh, originally wanted to go to um, a cell biology lab uh, in Germany, which but uh, they were full and it didn't it didn't work out. So I actually went and worked in the lab of one of my former students, Peter Meyer, who was in Zurich. He was his lab was the first to to clone by by using oocyte expression systems, NTCP. Uh, mm, uh, so a transporter, and and and. Uh, Ned and I had already determined that the skate liver, which was the species that we worked on at uh, MDIBL, didn't have a sodium-dependent transporter for mm-hmm. bile acid uptake. It was all sodium-independent. And we had mm-hmm. determined that in terms of radioisotope uptake in the absence of sodium, mm-hmm. presence of absence of sodium, there was no difference in the, in the uptake. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was now going to try to try to get this, you know, clone that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the idea. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't. I didn't succeed in 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 in, uh, in 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 doing that. But it led 
to uh, Ned taking back a, back a whole bunch of of, of mRNA, mRNA from skate liver yeah. mm-hmm. uh, back when he went back that next year from the summer lab uh, and uh, putting a, a student on the project. And two years later, uh, he came up with these two uh, uh, forms of uh, two, two gene uh, products. Mm-hmm. They termed OST alpha mm-hmm. and OST beta, OST for organic solute transport. And uh, that uh, led to uh, eventually to collaborations, of course, with Paul. Uh, and and uh, we didn't know what it, what the function of it was. I actually mm-hmm. have to confess to you that I didn't think it was all that important because it was distributed and the message was distributed in a number of different tissues. Mm-hmm. And, and we didn't, including the intestine, but we didn't we didn't measure it in different parts of the intestine to escape. Mm-hmm. So we didn't we didn't get the terminal ileum. Right. And uh, that's what you needed. And, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so when Paul, you know, came up with his his studies that said, you know, suggested that OST alpha was playing a role and mm-hmm. called up Ned or Ned email or whatever it was at the time. I don't know what, remember whether the emails were working then or not. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and, and, and uh, Ned had developed antibody to uh, to it and sent some to Paul and lo and behold, there it was on the terminal ileum. Mm-hmm. As well as other tissues, but <clears throat> highly enriched in the terminal ileum. Mm-hmm. And that's how that, that discovery occurred. Mm-hmm. Amazing. That story is, I still think. Totally serendipitous story. Right. And well, and do you know, like, how did um, Dr. Dawson, he just read about it? Or, I mean, I, I still haven't quite picked his brain about how he made that connection to find you Well, guys. you know, he cloned the ASBT, he cloned mm-hmm. the apical sodium diacetyl transport for the uptake in the alien. Okay? Mm-hmm. But it wasn't known how... how how it got back out of the, of the ileum into the into the portal blood. Mm-hmm. So he reasoned, and this was the genius of Paul. He mm-hmm. reasoned that that the bile acids couldn't get in now into the ileum; they must be, ex- be exposed to the colon. And he said, "Well, maybe there's a protein that's upregulated in in the in the colon that's absent in the ileum." Uh, that uh, is now subserving this function for getting bile acids back to the portal circulation. Mm-hmm. So he took M- RNA from, from uh, both these tissues and sent it off to a gene company that was at that mm-hmm. time, you know, doing expression, you know, of what uh, in tissue, tissue expression. Mm-hmm. And, and back came a several hits, uh, I think there were 10 different hits, one of which was OST alpha. Mm-hmm. And he he looked up what was known. And we had published, mm-hmm. you know, several papers already about the discovery of this solute carrier and some of its properties, but not this, its significance as the ileal transport. Mm-hmm. We didn't know that. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he got... He, he got the reagents from from Ned, Ned that, that that 
pinned it down as mm -hmm. being uh, located and highly concentrated in the ilium on the basal lateral side. That's awesome. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Um, yeah, that's amazing. And it's just, I mean, I also, it speaks a little bit to how important it is that science is collaborative and non, you know, I mean, it, it, everybody has a tendency to get competitive, but the, yeah. you know, well, it's a wonderful story that I, I like to tell this, this story, as you know, I, I tell that story and it's part of the history of, of, of uh, development of patibiliary uh, secretory function mm -hmm. and the enteropathic circulation of bile acids, because we were looking for something entirely different. Mm -hmm. and come up with uh, something that uh, was even more important than what we were looking mm -hmm. for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, a, that's amazing. And I, I think it's such a cool, it's, it's what I felt even as a graduate student, that you're surrounded, especially as a graduate student, you know, surrounded by all of these people who are doing things that are different than what it is that you're doing. And they can push your thought process down different lanes that it wouldn't otherwise go. And I think it's very, it's sort of very exciting because I think really interesting questions and approaches to things come out of that, um, which I think this is a kind of a perfect example of that, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, so uh, if you have a, a second to talk a little bit about this course. So we, you mentioned it earlier um, and I had the opportunity, I guess it was two or three years ago that I went right. to the course, um, but also uh, an experience where there are fellows and PhD students and MD PhD students and young faculty, it's really kind of runs the gamut of training and then also runs the gamut kind of internationally. There's people, there were people there from um, uh, Europe and from South, South America um, and from, you know, Asian countries. And so uh, if you could talk a little bit about, how, you know, what the inspiration was for building that course and sure. kind of what it has become, because I think it's, it was a hugely valuable moment yeah. uh, for well, me. Well, there's, there's, there's good news and bad news about this uh, at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, first of all, it was not my, it, it was, it was, I didn't invent this course, the structure of the course. Um, the course uh, was patterned after one uh, that uh, the nephrologist, again, uh, came up mm -hmm. with in large part. Um, and had been running at the lab for about 10 years. Uh, similarly, the uh, course had developed for residents at Beth Israel Hospital uh, pattern after more or less these same uh, modules that we have. That is, you'd spend a day and a half on a given project. You, mm -hmm. in, in the case of the kidney people, they would do toad bladder experiments uh, and things and aquaporn uh, experiments and and uh, things of that sort. Uh, uh, so I th hesitated for quite a while. I, I thought had thought about developing a, a liver GI uh, course, but I hesitated because I didn't think we had enough uh, 
experimental work that, that we could 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 do. Um, and I'm trying to remember what changed my mind about it. There were in the other courses two, uh, one on uh, on gastric secretion, mm-hmm. uh, and one on chloride secretion, mm-hmm. which of course was diarrhea was was would be our form. So they, they were already well established, and the people who who gave them came on into our course as well and repeated mm-hmm. them there. So. You know, I knew we could do a module on, on uh, the enterpatic circulation. Mm-hmm. Um, initially, we were going to do this in skates, uh, but then the the lab changed and no longer had the live animals in it during the course of that. So we we came up with several other parameters. And I got the zebra when I could, when I got the zebrafish involved. Then I mm-hmm. then I thought, well, maybe this is a viable thing mm-hmm. so i had to go out and recruit people to come and mm-hmm. teach the zebra with zebra for course uh, uh component mm-hmm. and and the second component th- the thing that solidified it was the was the organoid component mm-hmm. so we had the bile acid component we added on the organoid component and the zebra fish and then the two other courses, that, modules that were existing. So that gave us five modules, mm-hmm. which in the beginning was enough to get the course uh, going. I, I applied for NIH funding initially, did not get it, and was able later to get uh, funding from Gilead mm-hmm. Pharmacy and also some from <coughs> Intercept Pharma. Mm-hmm. And on the basis of those uh, grants, we were able to hold the course for a total of five years. Mm-hmm. Uh, then uh, Gilead uh, was unable to support the course further. And of course, last year, because of COVID, mm-hmm. we didn't have any courses at all. Uh, this year, uh, we don't have funding. So uh, I think uh, we apply, I applied again to NIH. And as, as all the things you said about the course earlier were absolutely true. We got a review that was very critical, and, and I thought we could rebut everything that, in mm-hmm. it. Um, uh, and uh, but NIH being NIH, I mean, we got a fundable score, but it wasn't within the pay line. Mm-hmm. Uh, they these were our uh, twenty three R uh, grants, I think the mechanism. Okay. And uh, they're only one a year, or two mm-hmm. year at the most. So uh, we're. I've talked to Paul about this most recently, about how we could get this course going again, because the mm-hmm. people who have taken the course have been very positive about it. Program mm-hmm. directors have have uh, felt very positive about it, um, and uh, but getting reviewers to be, mm-hmm. you know positive about things is sometimes not easy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I mean, but, it does, it does seem like a, a really awesome opportunity as someone who's a, you know, younger trainee to have time interacting with people that are three, four, five, six years ahead of me in training. Yes, and, yeah, and, it's, it's terrific. It's a, yeah. it's a great atmosphere for, for any level of, of, of education. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
that's uh, what's right now is sort of disappointing to me. And uh, we can't mm-hmm. at the moment continue it. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll keep our fingers crossed yeah. and hopefully we'll put out this podcast and then, you know, maybe someone will be listening to it. <laughs> and, uh, I don't know how important we are, but um, all right. Well, I, you know, I want to be cognizant of your time. I just wanted to ask a couple more questions. Sure. Um, so we've been doing this for a couple of years and there are kind of significant challenges facing physician scientists, a lot of them having to do with um, not feeling like they have enough support uh, to kind of complete their training in, in, in research um, and then to keep them with protected time, uh, allow them that time to um, uh, uh, learn to be scientists and to write their grants and to get their labs going and whatever. And a lot of that has come down to people have said that their mentors are, are incredibly important. Uh, what advice, first, what advice do you have for people coming out of training to identify those mentors? You talked about three of your mentors that you, um, that were all very influential, high powered people, which can sometimes be intimidating for young trainees to reach out to and say, you know, look, I want to do this thing. Can you help me do that? What advice do you have for people who are maybe finishing med school, maybe finishing residency or fellowship to, to identify mentors, um, to help them along this path? Well, first of all, don't be intimidated. I think that's the first advice I would give you you seek out, uh, people who they have to have the time, of course. And sometimes, you know, somebody is well-known is going to not going to have the time to devote to you, but, I think again, it comes down to to being passionate about a problem. Mm-hmm. That comes first, and then you seek the help you need to solve the questions mm-hmm. in that problem. And uh, that's, I think, um, my, the strongest advice I could give. Mm-hmm. Now, you may want to have a general mentor that you know you review things with and who is knowledgeable of the area that you're working in. And that may be very important. But as I said before, the mentoring requires a, a bilateral relationship. Mm-hmm. So there has to be, and, and sometimes it doesn't work very well. Then you need to change. You need to change mm-hmm. and find, find a situation where it does is working for you. Um, so I... I you shouldn't hesitate, though, to to try to get as strong a mentor as you can. That's that's because we all, those of us who go through this, know how important it is. And so, mm-hmm. no matter what our position, uh, if we have the time, we 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 we're happy to delighted to to, to help uh, if we if we if we, if we can, if we can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not an easy answer to your question, no. but, but uh, uh, it's very, it is very important. Mm-hmm. And time, you, again, the other thing is having enough time available today. And, and, and science today is a team sport. Mm-hmm. You know, you need to have access to multiple uh, technologies and not mm-hmm. just stick with one. So mm-hmm. I've seen people start out with a great technology and 
and then they don't make then you know feel goes on mm-hmm. and people don't change and and don't adapt to the to the to, to new technologies and mm-hmm. they're afraid to give up the one they've been successful mm-hmm. with and that's the kiss of death usually <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah in the long run awesome i think that's awesome advice and then the just the final thing is you know we barely touched on all the incredible things you did in your career and are doing um what is one thing what would you say looking back is the thing that you're most proud of well, I think I'm most proud of, of what our, of my trainees and the accomplishments that they made uh, over the years. I never, I always th- thought the best thing to do is surround yourself with people smarter than you are and let them have their own, you know, their own direction in many ways. Um, and I've, I've been blessed to have uh, during my career some really wonderful people uh, uh, and uh, they've gone on and and and, and now are, are leaders uh, uh, leaders in the field themselves and, and that that to me is has given me enormous satisfaction awesome well thank you so much for doing this and for taking so thank you all for joining us for another episode of behind the microscope That concludes our episode for this week, and we want to thank Dr. Boyer for taking the time to share his experiences and wisdom with us. Be sure to check out his faculty page linked in the show notes. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate, subscribe, follow, and share us with others you think would appreciate this content. If you have time, leave us a review on iTunes. And if you are curious about what else we're doing here at Behind the Microscope, head to our website at www.behindthemicroscope.com. Behind the Microscope is executive produced by Joe Banke, Carrie Jansen, Michael Sayeg, and me. Our faculty advisor is Dr. Brian Robinson. Also, a special thanks to Dr. Paul Dawson for setting up this interview. I'm Bijan Sadie. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.